My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an herb original. I am chief. My dad was a great chief of the Simshan Nation, beloved by his people. But at home, with his family, he brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed, I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now. This is a CBC podcast. Ooh, hi, cuties. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Um, I don't know you, but we share a lot. Just because of where we are, where we come from, the stories and histories that live in our bodies, and um, the resilience of our experience is so beautiful and incredible. That's Jeremy Dutcher, the fabulous cape-wearing Juno-winning Wallistagwayic artist with a message of love for our queer and two-spirit people. Hi, I see you. I love you. Um, keep going. We got to choose life. We got to do it. Um, there's a lot of beauty here. We lost too many already. So uh, it's not going to be you. It's not going to be you because we're still here. And actually, it's not even just about being here. It's kind of about sharing too and giving of yourself to the people around you. So keep doing that too because it's going to make you feel better. Jeremy wants to remind you to sing, drink plenty of water, and give long hugs. He's one of the music makers who are here to share some love notes. Dante Anin Buju. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. It's a tale as old as time. Boy meets girl, they fall in love, and live happily ever after. Yes, the world is full of love stories. But if your love story falls outside of this heteronormative narrative, it can be hard to see yourself reflected in the romance, especially when it comes to love songs. However, these trans, queer, and two-spirit singers and songwriters are changing the tune. You're telling us to turn it down, and every time you do, we're just going to turn it up. Because the more you tell us to be silent and to be less visible the more we're just going to push forward and be even more visible. For me, it's a way to speak my mind without actually speaking. Being able to have that love and feel joy from that, feel heartbreak, feel all these things, I think is what makes us human. Today on Radio Indigenous, trans and two-spirit artists who are making room in music for queer love. It began with a line from a poem and a story about a two-spirit kin who was taken too soon. Jeremy Dutcher's sophomore album, Madel Wolinawug, calls us to come together to witness, celebrate, and heal. For Jeremy, it's important to bring attention to both the light and dark realities for queer and two-spirit youth. His latest album is a love letter for the community, but it's also a plea. (laughs) 
His powerful music comes out of his own coming in as a two-spirit person. Jeremy is a Wallastagwayak song carrier and composer from Tobique First Nation. Jeremy, welcome to Unreserved. Hello, Rosanna. It's so good to be here with you. It's good to have you. Now, I want to start off our little chat with a little more of a serious note with one of the album's most emotional songs, which I've heard and burst into tears. Uh, Tell me about Ancestors Too Young. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, You know, that that song um, means something now on the side of 215 and and, and all those ancestor babies coming forward um, than it did when I wrote it, Mm. you know, because that song actually is related to something totally different which is the suicide you know, epidemic that exists at the intersections of queer experience and indigenous experience. And so there's this beautiful quote that kind of guided this work, which is the place where two discriminations meet is a dangerous place to live. Absolutely. And that for me spoke to the, the precarity for a lot of our, our, our two-spirit um, kin, the, the, the ones in between, the middle people. Before I was doing music, I was I was working with the LGBT uh, human rights organization, uh, going up and visiting some some pretty isolated communities um, and hearing experiences of of two spirit people that lived out there, and it really changed my perspective. Mm. And it came from I guess not wanting to be misunderstood. Mm. Yes, it's a very emotional song, and of course, you know our two spirit youth are very high at risk of, of, of harming themselves, self-harm, and of suicide. What did you want to, to convey with that song in, in sharing, you know, these heartbreaking uh, scenarios? I guess what I wanted to share by speaking about that intersection, you know, of, of queer experience and of Indigenous experience, to breathe some life into that and just say that you know we're gonna we're gonna sing the song we're gonna remember the ones we've lost uh, there's a trumpet solo at the end of that song I, I work with this trumpeter named Lena Almano and uh, I asked her could you just play grief and it took one take and that's what she came out with. And it, I've never heard the trumpet played in that way, but it felt like a, a giving of a, of, of a kind of grief. Yeah. Ooh. We just need to be back in the circle again mm. as, as two-spirit people, as queer people in our communities. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of downsides for us to be outside of that circle, you know, and I've witnessed that in many, in many different ways. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I wanted to speak to the hard parts as much as the beautiful parts and, and where they meet in the middle too. Mm. Uh, and you absolutely have a beautiful way of, of sharing these experiences. Why did you think it was important for you to, to share that darkness and that light in your music? In a way, I guess it's about, connecting to a a human story in the hopes that we can heal through this kind of empathetic, sympathetic sharing of who we are and where we come from. It's because we all have something we hold precious in this life, you know, something we want to keep alive, something that is sacred to us. 
And for me, when I choose to tell my story through music or through word or through poetry, it is an excavating of everything. Mm. The, the, the beautiful, the nice sounds, the soft sounds, the loud sounds, the, the hard ones too. And, 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 and I guess that's why it's important to share those because it's a human experience mm. of grief. And I think, you know, certainly there's a lot of things that connect us as human beings, but the, as we get more granular around like, you know, indigenous experience or queer experience or queer indigenous, you know, we could, we could have the most precise point on the, on the map, you know, but hopefully that story is still going to reverberate out to, to, to the human story too. And it's so rare to hear music that is about two-spiritness. It's really wonderful and uplifting to, to hear, even if it's hard, right? Yeah. Um, are you comfortable sharing your own coming out story? Oh, sure. Why not? It's pretty clumsy. <laughs> okay, we're, it's all clumsy. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know, I, I've gotten a chance through that coming in process um, to understand that Finding yourself can happen at any point in your life. I was, I was 14 when I came to some kind of realization that I might be a little different in the ways of, of love and, and who, who is in my heart. And um, I didn't know, quite know what that meant, you know, being, being quite young. But uh, yeah, I, I, I told my parents um, really, really young. I'm so grateful I got the support that I did because I, I, on this journey, I met a lot of people that at that critical moment did not receive that support. But I always felt protected, you know, by, by family close to me, which is, um, which is a beautiful gift, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that allowed me to flourish into this little rainbow flower that, that I get to be on, on stage and on, on record. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm very lucky in that way. You know, school times weren't always easy. Definitely, you know, being in situations that, that didn't always make you feel safe and being at the, the end of some violence, both physical and verbal. Um, this, is, this is a lot of our experience. You can't hide from that and, and be silent about it either, right? I think for a long time, I didn't actually talk about those things. Um, yeah. but it's, uh, it's also healing, I think, and reverberant to know that other people experience that. <laughs> yeah. You, you use the term there, uh, coming in that m may not be familiar to, to our listeners. And of course that term was coined by my good friend, Dr. Alex Wilson. Um, can you explain what that means in the indigenous yeah. context? Oh, I'm so, I'm so happy you spoke Alex's name. I think reorienting this idea around coming out, when we start to pull the threads of what all that means, I think it's not our perspective to say coming out. I think we're actually coming into a truth or into ourselves in a beautiful way. And, and I think that's, I don't want to speak for Alex, but I think that's maybe what she, <laughs> she might assert too, Dr. Alex Wilson. Um, yeah, we're, co we're coming into a knowledge and into ourselves. And so that's how I've understood it. And I think it's, it's a really beautiful flip of the concept you know, it's really important for our our young people, you know, particularly our two-spirit youth, to, to see, you know, representation and to hear representation uh, and to go to your concerts and be able to, to connect with you in that way because you're so true and honest to yourself. 
Um, and that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful gift that you you have um, put out into the world. Just be, just you. You don't even have to sing. You just be, be. Really? Oh, can I finally <laughs> give that up? I just the singing thing was just to get on stage. No, that's not true. I love it so much, and, and of course I'll keep doing music. But I, I I love to be out there, you know. And that's why I go and do these, you know, Juno things and wear the big capes and show show off our fabulous language and and all this stuff. It's really important for me. To, to be a representation, not a representative maybe, but a representation mm-hmm. of, of our beauty. Yeah. Can you tell me about when you first learned about Two-Spirit Identity and how mm. it changed, you know, your understanding uh, of your queer identity? Yeah. When I came up really young, I, all I had access to was the word gay. Mm. Right. And, and I, love this, I love this idea that the limits of our language are the limits of our mind. And so, you know, it, only when we can name something can we can we fully come into it. And I think um, as I left home and went actually to Halifax and and came into contact with this with this group called the Wabanaki Two Spirit Alliance, and it was a group of people like me. And just through community building and showing up to gatherings, and it was it was a really cool way to understand myself. Rather than feeling like I had to separate myself and, and, you know, not be too this in that space and not be too that in this space, you know, finally it was kind of like a coming together and it, it, it felt easy. Mm. Um, um, I remember going to the one in, in BC to the International Two-Spirit Gathering and, and just just the feeling of walking into a room and seeing people that, that look like you that, you know, that identify this way um, is just, how would we describe it? A big relief, a big, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh my gosh. Finally. I'm not (laughs) weird. I'm, you know, this is completely normal to be. And maybe and that's okay. And maybe we are weird, but we're weird together. We'll be weird together. And that's nice. Was there a particular elder, you know, did you want to shout out to to talk about (laughs) two-spiritness? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, when I went, uh, when I got connected with this two-spirit organization, the Wabanaki Two-Spirit Alliance, um, there are some knowledge keepers in in, in those circles. Um, Duma Young and uh, John R. Silliboy, Walter Jij and uh, Kenny Prosper, all of these Mi'kmaq old ones that uh, had so much knowledge to share. I guess that's really when I started to hear and and really when i started to share space with with people of that same experience wow it was so powerful um but then realizing like when i went finally back to my territory and home and and realizing oh we've had those teachings in our territory the whole time um of course you are a champion of of your language and of learning and you're still on your learning path uh uh, I go home and and have to listen and listen to Cree, and I while I love the sound of it, um, you know it's clumsy on the tongue. It feels it feels um, awkward when I when I try to speak. But how important is language on on in this identity journey that you're that you're on? Clumsy on the tongue. I love that you're a poet. My goodness, <laughs> um, I feel because I feel that so much as well. And there's an elder. Her name's Henrietta Black, and she's the, the oldest speaker of our language. She says, it's not, it's not even about fluency. Do you have flow? 
Can you flow in your language? And I think that's what we're trying to get towards is that going from clumsy tongues to, to flowing tongues again. And mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a huge movement right now, you know, coast to coast to coast uh, of, of people, young to old, that are, that are really looking towards language as um, essential to our health, essential to environmental <laughs> health, um, you know, music I see as a vehicle to talk about language. It's still very much the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is to highlight language and, and culture in that way. Because I think there's a lot of solutions in that language. Climate solutions, gender-based violence solutions. It's kind of all there, even in simple ways of how we talk about gender. You know, if, for example, in our, in, in our language, we don't have those gender pronouns, she or he, you know, nagum. Everyone is nagum. Mm. Um, which is not to say we don't have, you know, uh, everywhere on that gender spectrum, um, of course. But linguistically, there is not a, an essentialization of this thing we call gender. And a, as I've come to better understand the bones and the structure of my mom's language, it's um, really powerful to see the ways it's changed me in terms of my understanding of, of myself as a person in the world. You know, you ask how, how it's connected to, to this journey of my identity, and it's in totality. Um, the language is, is supporting and, and lifting that journey up and guiding it. You had mentioned uh, earlier some of our two spirits, uh, Kin, in the music world, Melody McIver. Um, we're going to be speaking with G.R. Grit, oh, yes. um, Chris Dirksen, yes. um, you know, these, these wonderful music makers. How would you, and I seem, they seem to be, uh, there's a lot of them in our, in our community, which, which I love. How would you describe the presence of queer and indigenous experiences in pop music right now? Oh, I think it's so bright and vibrant. That's, that's what I'm seeing is our, is our two-spirit kin, shining and reflecting and being welcomed back into that circle in a way where we're lifted up, which is kind of, it's, it's an essential motion. And, you know, when we look at our histories, um, some would say that's always how it was, was those, those middle people, those, those queer beings within our community were, were looked to as people of balance and people that had a message, you know, to share. I hope this is where we're headed. It seems like it. And mm-hmm. um, I'm encouraged by that all the time. You know, you mentioned Chris. Uh, I had looked to Chris like since I was young to say, wow, you know, and, and weaving together these worlds that that I thought I had to separate classical indigenous and then to also be a queer person, too. It was such a beautiful marriage that allowed me to see myself the possibility of what I could share. Trailblazing, hey? You know, uh, yeah, I really I really feel so. It's a, it's a bright time. It's a really bright time. And it's really good to see this within my, within my uh, life cycle. Jeremy, thank you so much for this time and for this, another beautiful album and, and just for being, you know, you. Thanks, Rosanna. Jeremy Dutcher is a two-spirit Wallistigwea composer and singer from Tobik First Nation. You're tuned in to Radio Indigenous. I'm your DJ, Rosanna Deerchild. As we just heard, Jeremy sings praises for artists like Chris Dirksen. This contemporary cellist challenges traditional norms in the classical music world. Her love note for Indigenous queer and trans youth? Nerds win in the end. 
If you like something at a young age and you just stick to it, chances are you're going to be able to do that for a living. Chris is an internationally renowned composer with an electric cello. My name is Chris Dirksen, and I am a half-Cree, half-Mennonite cellist and composer. Um, I'm originally from Treaty 8, Northern Alberta, North Talcree Reserve on my dad's side, Buffalo at Hills, Lacrete, Alberta on my mom's side. It's about like 975 kilometers north of Edmonton, and I currently live in Takaranto, Toronto, the dish with one spoon territory. You know, the cello is in the same range as a human voice. It is completely relatable. The cello is luxe. It's rich. It's often like the sad music, the sad part of the movies. That's when the cello comes in. For me, the cello is an instrument I think I can speak uh, more clearly with just the instrument than um, using songs with words. For me, it's a way to speak my mind without actually speaking. When I was 10, I was already playing piano. Edmonton Public School, where I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, they had a string program that was super accessible, super affordable. It was like 300 bucks a year for the instrument and group lessons and orchestra. Um, so when I was 10, I came home with a piece of paper saying, does your son or daughter want to play violin, viola, cello, or bass? And I wanted to play the bass, uh, but my mom's car was too small. And so she said, take the next biggest thing. And that's how I got stuck with the cello. I feel like for me, I was always wanting to take the cello out of the concert hall and take it to street level. I always wanted to make music that is relatable um so it's also like taking it it's not necessarily about being queer as much as it's about being indigenous and uh you know folks on the res don't necessarily folks on my res didn't know what a cello was before uh, it became my career and i think for me it was always about uh taking that really classical instrument and bringing it down to the street level so it was relatable to my peers and to my other indigenous, to my cousins, literally, to my indigenous cousins. And I think I've done the same in the classical world of making, you know, I use a lot of effect pedals on my cello. And so really expanding the realms of what a cello can do and allowing um, room for otherness within classical music. The classical world is always a few decades behind <laughs> and, uh, in what is happening in the global uh, context of things, but I really feel like things are moving and things are shifting um, as far as like queer representation within the symphony stage. There's a, a show called Thorgy Thor, which is a, a drag queen who plays violin, and that's like a really popular show in Canada. And then there's like a few um, musical directors slash conductors that I work with that are super queer and, you know, really killing it and really making a name for themselves. So the classical indigenous gathering at the Banff Center of the Arts started in 2019. Um, when the Banff Center asked me, Chris Dirksen, 
what do you want to do? And I realized that there was a hole within our music community. There's a lot of different classical musicians and we were all kind of siloed. We didn't really hang out. We didn't have a relationship. So I really felt that there's a big, there's a missing link of, of building that relationship. So that's why I started it, uh, you know, to build the relationships so then we can help each other get work, we can champion each other, we can open doors together. Um, and so we're not so alone. You know, I think in the composing world, it's easy to feel like you're quite alone. And, and this is a way to like open that relationship and open the doors. I have a, I have a show at Carnegie Hall for a new piece that I wrote for Orchestra Metropolitan. It's something that wasn't even on my bucket list because as a kid, I didn't think I would get to Carnegie Hall playing the cello. But through this program, we've been able to show the Canadian landscape that Indigenous classical music is really strong and really beautiful. I also have a, have a new saying that, like, how do we make classical music look and sound a little bit more like Canada in all walks of life, like BIPOC, you know, how do we make it look more queer? How do we make it classical music more accessible to Canadians? Okay, so Top Shelf is a two-spirit love song um, that me and my wife Bobby Benson wrote together. It really is about, you know, we love someone so much, they are, you're everything, and uh, Top Shelf for me is like, you know, it's just a little bit higher, it's just a little bit better than all of the rest, and I think um, this song is about one aiming higher for each other, but also the admiration of loving the person so much that you think they're the best thing ever. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you've been told that you are my dark horse, black rose, my stallion, lucky number one, and you are my top shelf. a bit of the song Top Shelf by Chris Dirksen. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, we're singing queer love loud and... In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlick Case. Available now. Proud. Catherine Paul is Swinomish and a Nupak. You might recognize the singer-songwriter as Black Belt Eagle Scout. She uses music as a way to express and explore herself. 
KP writes songs like love letters to the land where her ancestors walked and where she feels whole in her identity as a queer Indigenous woman. For her, being able to love and be loved freely is part of being human. My name's KP and I'm a member of the Swinomish Indian tribal community. I also descend from Anupak people and the Colville people. Chitsots is a Lashootseed word that means a narrow place and it's a place in my homelands that is very special to me and that I love to visit and walk around. It's kind of like this peninsula area with a lot of forest and a lot of um, views of the water, views of animal relatives, views of distant lands. Like you can see some like far off islands, you can see mountain ranges, like it's significant and it feels like a powerful place. Whenever I go there, I just get this feeling of wholeness. You know, like I'm in balance and feeling like, you know, I'm on the right path. Just this kind of reassurance. It hits me in a way where I think about like my identity and who I am. Having, you know, those thoughts while walking in along these paths where I know that my ancestors have walked. I know that they have been here in this area they've like have their footsteps on this path in that place are are where i'm stepping and so having that kind of connection and then also that feeling of being myself like to me that signifies like identity and so chitsots is a song that's about like feeling whole and feeling like myself and in my identity and which happens to be like a queer indigenous person. I grew up on the Swinomish reservation and then uh, within next to the reservation is the town of Laconner, a very like small town. Like the downtown is like one, one road of like maybe like four or five blocks and that's it. And so I didn't really grow up with a lot of visibility of queer people within my community and just within this area. Since being in high school and like since in college, like there's there's actually a queer community here in my in my homelands and in my reservation, which is really awesome. There's this teaching that my dad has taught me that has come from his dad and it's, you know, to sing from your heart, to to like do things in a good way, which I think is kind of almost inherently like a universal indigenous teaching. That is like this notion that goes into like when I write music and how I hold myself in in the world. Having the, the ability and autonomy to create more space for love so that, you know, all of it can um, thrive. It's cool to be able to have that <laughs> and to be able to utilize music as like a function of expression and as a as a function of like continuing to i guess figure out who i am i i kind of feel like i will always be learning about who i am and i think that is something that is really exciting to me and it's something that i look forward to all the time it's just always learning 
more so about myself and having that relationship be in place. As a Swinomish person and like as like an indigenous person, like going back to the basic like feeling of belonging and belonging to the land and belonging to the waters, like I think that is at the root of how we, um, how I express my identity. I think that love is love and whoever wants to love one another should have the ability, whether or not they're, you know, heteronormative or a part of the LGBTQ plus community. I think love is very powerful and helps bring us together. And so I think that the more types of love and, you know, being able to have that love and feel joy from that, feel heartbreak, feel all these things, I think is what makes us human. That's KP, also known as Black Belt Eagle Scout. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Self-described music nerd Melody McIver is writing queer love back into love songs. Literally. The assistant professor of Indigenous music at the University of Manitoba came across a collection of love songs transcribed by anthropologists in the early 1900s. The songs featured Indigenous men singing about falling in and out of love. So the composer and musician got to work coloring rainbows outside the lines, and it all started with one title in particular. The song title translated to, like, I don't need you anymore. <laughs> Our ancestors had breakup songs too. We had love songs. And as someone that's a huge devoted music nerd of many different genres, I was like, breakup songs is like a time-honored tradition in many different Western pop musics. Uh, <laughs> I started listening Absolutely. to like so much like George Michael while I was composing this. And I was writing for saxophones. Mm. So like that, it was just like really... Let's sing together. I'm never gonna dance again. <laughs> So yeah, why can't we lean into that breakup uh, element? Why can't we challenge this romanticization? And if I think of that sort of melancholy breakup song, then like that brought me in and I had a lot of fun, uh, fun starting off this collection. It might surprise people to know that we, we had breakup, you know, breakup songs like that in, in the 1900s because we're supposed to be all about love and harmony and peace and, and, and that kind of thing. What did you do with that, with that story when, or that song? How did you reinterpret it and reimagine it? Uh, there's a lot of strong imagery about this, the, this man that's singing to his sweetheart and he's standing on the floor while she's like paddling away in the canoe. And as a, as a reader, who's someone who's encountering this a hundred years later, um, I don't know why she's leaving. I don't know where or who she is going to. And so I was like, what uh, what if she's not going for another man? What if she's leaving for another woman? What if she's leaving for, for a two-spirit person? Because we did exist, um, and that documentation exists in like other anthropologists from the same, uh, same time. So I know that it's impossibility to think that queerness is a 
late 20th century innovation in indigenous communities. Like we've mm. always been here. So I just want to challenge these archives and uh, think that what if, what if we were there and like you were just censoring us out? Mm-hmm. And we likely were. I'm just mm-hmm. going to give some snaps for that. Love it. Love that story. Um, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about y- y- your work as a musician. Um, you, particularly the viola. Um, which you play beautifully. I saw you at the Jeremy Dutcher uh, concert when you when you came out and played. Um, what is it about the viola that helps uh, helps you bring out the story and 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 the emotions that you're trying to portray? I picked up the viola relatively late in life. In retrospect, I still felt so young. Uh, but my mom's Anishinaabe and my dad's uh, Canadian-born of uh, Scottish and Lithuanian descent. Uh, that that violin was my father's instrument, so he took some fiddle lessons and some classical lessons growing up. Um, uh, my first violin had been in the family. I ended up taking music lessons at a young age, um, and I ended up studying music in university. And it was a bit of a whim halfway through my undergrad where it's very common for violinists to double on viola. Uh, they share three out of four strings. They're played in basically the same manner like you have to adapt your technique a bit but most people can manage a decent level of proficiency on both instruments so uh my violin teacher she was like you know what uh she said i always thought you were a little bit too rough on your violin but like the viola is a little bit bigger like you need to dig in a bit more like it's like i think this is your instrument and then i was also studying improvisation uh with the cellist and um and then he looked at me uh, and he was like, can you, can you sing the low note? And I was like, yeah. Um, and he's like, this, this is your voice. Like this viola just like sits in your voice. Like you're, you're not a soprano. Like why play the soprano instrument? And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm getting some strong messages here. And, um, that was that. Like I barely play my violin now. Like I, I will, like I enjoy it. It's nice, but like, I like to think that there's a certain queerness to the viola as well, where it's, uh, I mean, like there's so much elitism within the classical music family that like uh, violinists really like to tell viola jokes. Like there is like, there's there's this whole repertoire of like viola (laughs) jokes. Like we're um, kind of awkwardly shaped sitting like middle voices. Like there's not as much glamorous repertoire as there would be for the violin or cello. There's a certain adaptability uh, when I think of different Anishinaabe uh, two-spirit frameworks, like from uh, that I've heard like Ron Indian Mandaman talk about, he talks about two-spirit people being kind of at like the center of the circle or the snare of having this sort of intermediary kind of crossing back and forth capacity. And the viola does that. I can cover cello parts. I can cover violin parts. Uh, we sit at the middle. Uh, we're not quite like either like the high or low end of the spectrum, but uh, have that versatility and adaptability. And I think there's kind of this beautiful queerness in that too, where the viola just like uh, really spoke to me. I love that melody. I just have this image of, you know, if a viola was a person being a hello, nice to meet you and you hello, nice to meet you and then getting to know each other and then falling in love. why do you think that there's so little representation of indigenous queer love stories in mainstream i mean i think we're seeing more of that now as uh, like there's Mm -hmm. such an explosion of queer and two-spirit literature queer and two-spirit film as well uh 
where we are now is, um, I think, a really exciting time compared to even five or ten years ago where there's uh, so much more visibility and access and opportunity for queer Indigenous artists. But why weren't we represented like that? Well, going back to these anthropologists, um, like the, they were state agents. Uh, these songs were collected and then copyright was held by various university collections, by various museum collections. Uh, so it's intellectual ownership, intellectual property, while residential schools are picking up speed and becoming a larger and larger uh, institution. So like, there's both like the state power, there's the church interests, and um, churches in the early 1900s not, were not really ready remotely to be accepting to queer people at all anywhere in the world uh there's so much persecution there and I, kent monkman's like really leaned into that in a lot of his earlier works too of like all these like dance of the bear dash type paintings that european christian encounter of seeing two-spirit people existing in a society and not being persecuted and just being an everyday part of a community i think that was something deeply unsettling for that colonial encounter that needed to be suppressed and tamped out. Uh, and even if there wasn't such like express suppression by that point, like we were also starting to Christianize ourselves. Um, and I imagine that any encounters that would have been happening by this era, they're either written about as a footnote with like a hint of disgust in the author's tone, or uh, I, I want to think that maybe uh, they not might not pick up on some of these nuances and not capture them, or they might just be uncomfortable and not document it. There's only like a handful of instances where you see this sort of interpretation of queer identity uh, in Anishinaabe-specific uh, communities, and it's enough to say, like, no, like we've been here this whole time. Um, and it, I, I think it also just says a lot about that censoring and narrative-shaping impulse to... Uh, be uncomfortable with queerness, so you're not going to write about it. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, as you say, it is changing. We're seeing more more of our love stories being represented. We're seeing more of our people coming into the circle. Why do you think it's important then to, to put these narratives out into the world so that young people see themselves reflected? That's a great question. And for myself uh as a younger person like it's definitely validating to be able to point and say like look here there's an Anishinaabe person look there there's an Anishinaabe person and so it's it's giving receipts and a paper trail and also being a visible uh person where I know that uh youth back home in my community like they they can reach out to me like I get inboxes when uh when stuff is happening when I speak to these things, uh, it's always about remembering that there's other people in our community that have let, less access to resource and supports than I do and to try and toss them a lifeline. Literally a lifeline mm -hmm. in some cases. For sure. You know, pushing back against heteronormative narratives, it, it can be heavy work and, and at times really exhausting. Where, where do you get your inspiration and strength from? I'm always just looking for some balance too as as the child of a 60 scoop survivor like I've spent a lot of my life like learning how to reconnect and to be a better participant in my uh, in my culture and um my partner uh we share the the same values and it's been uh been kind of a running joke where we ended up shacking in Winnipeg cuz like where else uh, should like an Ontario Ojibwe and like an Alberta Métis uh move but Winnipeg uh 
And so uh, I think that recharging time where I'm definitely a very uh, guilty of like too much screen time, but always making sure that like uh, the two of us can be visibly queer, but also going on a fishing trip every December, going and uh, harvesting minoman every uh, every September, or picking wild rice uh, back in my territory, uh, and continuing to kind of learn our land-based skills as well is something that's been really healing and inspiring for both of us. And sometimes I like wearing multiple hats where I'm not, uh, I'm a musician. I also love canoeing and trying and failing to hunt, but uh, doing quite well with... Uh, <laughs> Uh, with Minoman and Wild Rice. And like those are two different pots that uh, I like to to keep filled. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, what message w- would you, you know, give to artists like yourselves or young people um, trying to come into this space and, you know, are unsure of where to go or how to start? That's a really great question. And I think I really like leaning into your voice and like what it is that gets you excited. Uh, I think something that I struggled in trying to kind of launch my own music career is um, even in indigenous communities, like there's like a bit of a more established pathway to being kind of like a, a singer songwriter or like a hip hop artist. And like once I just like really leaned into like, how do I like to play the viola? Where does this viola fit? That led me back into like embracing kind of my classical music roots, um, but also keeping a strong foot in experimentalism and also realizing that people kept on telling my music was cinematic. And finally I started working with more filmmakers too and doing uh, film scoring. So like it's like, what do you get nerdy about? What do you get passionate about? Because like that's what makes you unique. And I'd rather see like a, a unique artist that's being true to themselves than one that's feeling that they need to please someone or to do things in a certain way. And like I think your way is going to be most exciting. Thank you for that, Melody, and thank you for this time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm gonna ask him in. Melody McIver is a member of Obishigokong, or Laxol First Nation. She is a composer, musician, and an assistant professor of Indigenous music at the University of Manitoba. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, queer love songs. It's a musical collaboration full of love. Transgender musician G.R. Gritt's latest album features a queer love song they co-wrote with Tessa and Peter Belez. The electrifying and genre-defying artist has captivated audiences with their soul-stirring music and powerful storytelling. Here's what the Anishinaabe artist had to say about the writing process and all the love behind Turning It Up. Writing, yeah, it was as easy as breathing with, with them. Um... You know, just I, I showed up with uh with kind of that initial dun, 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 da, da, dun, kind of bass line. We keep running it up. When she's saying that da, 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 it just gave me this like kind of prince vibe. Now. 
so the first feeling we got was like, oh, this is like, this is sexy, kind of like synth line, bass line. And so we're like, okay, you know, I'm just getting this feeling of like, this person is vying for more than one person and more than one gender and really making it a bit ambiguous of like using different pronouns, like using she, using they in the song. Are they the same person? Are they two separate people? And just kind of letting it be a bit complicated and complex and being like, I'm thinking of this person, but also this other person's got me thinking about them nonstop. And when you get into that course of like, some say keep it down, but we keep turning it up. You know, it's really just, it's a way of saying, you know, as queer people, you know, we're often told like, you're kind of too loud and too proud or you're too visible or don't do that in public or I don't want to see that or like, why do you have to have a parade or, so this is our way of being like, you're telling us to turn it down. And every time you do, we're just going to turn it up because the more you tell us to be silent and to be less visible, the more we're just going to push forward and be even more visible. And so the way that you can get us to just not have to be so loud is to actually stop being so antagonistic. There are some gigs that you're not going to get because of the politics that you have. That's just how it is. So I think it does impact how open people want to be or how much of themselves that they can be, whether it's, you know, queer politics, whether it's you're talking about the environment and criticizing certain companies for that. Like I've de- we've definitely lost gigs because of like having political songs about, you know, big oil or things like that. Like uh, if there are communities that, um, you know, receive a lot of that funding or I don't know, support from those companies, then you're, you're not going to get those gigs. Right. Uh, and also just like touring in small communities that are known to be less open-minded or not very Uh, kind towards queer people like you're not going to find safety in those places even though there are queer people who really need you to be there in those places you're kind of balancing like man i want to i want to be there for people i want to be visible i want to be this representation so that people can see that like we can exist and we can have positive relationships with uh family whether it's chosen or blood family we can have positive relationships with partners or spouses or friendships um with you know having jobs having you know we can live these full lives where we can be ourselves and so you want to show people that especially folks who are in communities where it's not even it's not safe to be even like one one percent of who you are but then we also risk like safety going into those spaces too and it it makes it um it makes it challenging uh and that's just heartbreaking so whenever i do talks that are specifically about like being queer or being trans I let folks know, like, you can message me on on Facebook or Instagram, and um, especially if you're a trans person or a queer person who's struggling with that I, that experience, and, like, sometimes there's not the information that you need online where you're, you're trying to figure things out, and you're like, I just need to talk to someone who's gone through something similar. The way I've described being trans, being queer to, like, people around me is... You know, for example, some things are not these big, big moments. It's like being misgendered. And I, and I compare it to like, you know, I'm on tour and I'm traveling. 
So I, you know, I get into the cab and it's like, you're misgendered. And then you get to the airport and then you're misgendered or they use the wrong pronouns or the wrong pronouns are on your ID. You're on the plane. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, automatically excluded. And this is just, I'm, and I'm just talking about like pronouns, really. I'm not talking about like a whole other bunch of things. Like, are there even bathrooms that are comfortable for me in the airport? And that's just like one tiny little um, spectrum of the experience of my day as a, a queer and trans person. And I, I see it as like, you're wearing a backpack and every time that happens, a, a stone, a pebble even is put in your backpack. Okay. By the end of the day, you're carrying a backpack full of stones. It's like this 300 pound backpack that you're carrying around. And it's not a guarantee when you wake up tomorrow that that bag is emptied out. So the next day you're going around again and you keep, people keep, putting these stones in this backpack. So, you know, and when you're misgendered, people are just like, oh my God, don't be so sensitive. But it's like, think of it this way. Like it's every time that happens, I feel invisible. I feel like I'm being erased. You don't see me. You're making assumptions about me, about who I am, about where I've come from, about how I was raised, about the way I was socialized. You're making all these assumptions about me. And every time you do that, I feel like another part of me is erased. And at the end of the day, I'm just this invisible person with this extremely heavy backpack that I carry around that no one else has to carry around. What music can do is it bypasses people's defensiveness and I think can hit them in their mind and in their heart in a way that is difficult through talking about it sometimes or even just like these <laughs> these kind of like Facebook rants or debates or like online social media like back and forth I think there's this like this humanity in it you know it's catchy you're singing along and then all you all of a sudden you realize like oh I'm singing all these different pronouns oh I'm talking about these different things and I'm like I'm singing along I'm like participating in this thing it's catchy and you want to you want to sing along and then all of a sudden you're like oh I just learned something you know yeah I think that's the power of music. It's it is a unifier. Pulling at my side. That's GR Grit and turning it up from their latest album, Prisms. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Rhiannon Johnson, Kim Kasher, Laura Bone Steubing, and Danielle Piper. Find more on our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved on the CBC Listen app or your favorite pod places. I'm your favorite cousin. Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.